Well, good morning, everyone. I want to say a special word of welcome to uh, those of you watching online and those at all the campuses. And before we dive into God's word today, I do want us to take a moment and I want us to pray for our country. Um, you probably have seen the stories come out of Memphis, um, how Tyree Nichols was stopped and then beaten by five Memphis police officers and then resulted in his death. And it is a reminder that that we live in a, in a world and in a nation where not everything is right. And we as Christians are called to be light. Would you join me? Let's pray about this. Heavenly Father, I, I pray first that Tyree's family would be comforted by your grace. And I know, God, they have got to be flooded with questions about why something like this happens. And God, we are reminded that there is so much violence in the world. The shootings that we've heard of just this week where you know, people have died because somebody goes on a tear. And God, it, it's, it's, I think, even more difficult because you know, here are law enforcement officers that are supposed to serve and protect, and, and that didn't happen. And so I, I pray that you would guide all first responders, but especially our policemen and policewomen, that, that they would not lean on their own understanding, but they would trust you. They have to make so many decisions so fast God, help them not be caught in the moment, but help them, Father, to, to pause and think so that, so that innocent people don't die. And I know, Father, there will be people who exploit this for their own purpose, and uh, they will try to make um, a cause of this so that their own organization can advance. Some people will do violence as a way of protest. I pray, Father, that you would just stop that in its tracks and people would realize that violence in response to violence is never the answer. God, in this broken world, help us, your people, be light and salt to show that there's a better way to live. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. According to CNBC, 90% of all Americans feel financial stress. So we're gonna test that. How many of you in the last 12 months, last year, have felt some financial stress? Audience participation. Okay, if you're not raising your hand, we're looking forward to your offering today. Okay, just kidding, just kidding. Um, so why are we stressed about our finances? Well, Forbes magazine ran uh, an article that suggested there are five reasons that people are stressed about money. Reason number one, I don't trust myself to make good financial decisions. And, and I think that's true for a lot of us. You know, it, it comes to finances. Who taught us how to make those decisions? Uh, most of us never took a class in personal finance. So we learned that from our parents. We learn how to make financial decisions from our parents. But here's the problem. If 90% of Americans are stressed about our finances, what did our parents teach us about finances? Be stressed, right? That's kind of what we learned. And so no wonder we don't trust ourselves to make good financial decisions. Uh, the second reason that Forbes says that people have difficulty or stress with money is they disconnect, there's a disconnect between our values and our spending. And, and you know this, you know this. So uh, most of us would agree it's a good idea to save money, right? But then actually saving money, that's the challenge. And most of us would think, hey, it's a good idea to be generous. But then actually being generous, I mean truly generous, that's an issue. 
Um, reason number three, you avoid something long-term that's important. That's the reason people feel stressed about money. Um, for example, uh, if you've got young kids, chances are pretty good your young kids at some point are going to want to go to college or to do something. Are you saving, preparing for that? Uh, if you want to retire one day, are you saving, preparing for retirement? And here's something that's reality that most of us don't want to face. Um, uh, and, and I put this exception, unless Jesus comes again, so that exception, 100% of you will die. Now there's a happy thought, isn't it? And yet, uh, LegalZoom estimates that only 33% of Americans have a will or have any estate planning. So why are we not dealing with this? Well, we're just avoiding a long-term uh, issue. And, and can I just tell you, in couples, it's hard to talk about money because we have different pictures about what long-term looks like. All right, reason number four, you have an unrealistic expectation about your lifestyle unrealistic expectation about your lifestyle. In America today, we think we are entitled to live an upper class middle, an upper middle class lifestyle. I mean, that's just sort of the message that we receive. And so your kids start to complain that all their classmates have been to Disney, but I haven't. Mommy, daddy, you're a bad mommy and daddy. Well, you don't wanna be a bad mommy and daddy, so what do you do? You take the kids to Disney, the happiest place on earth. One of the most expensive places on earth too. And you max out your credit cards and you go, and yeah, I understand, I understand, but you're actually responding to an outside force that's telling you, you deserve this. I want you to think about America's corporate advertising. Corporate America basically teaches us the answer to your problems is more. So if you will buy this product, or if you will buy more of this product, you will be happier. Now, it's real interesting. I heard a true story about a man who sued a beer company because he drank their beer and he did not attract young, slim women. Do you think we have an entitlement issue in our country? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so this is, this is what we do. We think entitlement. And of course, here's reason number five. It's fairly obvious. We don't have a safety net. That's why people are stressed out about money. We live paycheck to paycheck. And so if anything threatens our job or if the economy takes a downturn or if, if, if suddenly there's talk of layoffs in our industry, we can panic because we don't have any margin. So do you think we need peace in our financial life? I want you just to imagine what would it be like to not stress about finances, to not stress about money. This is what Jesus wants for you. Now, this year we're talking about peace. I have encouraged you to memorize John 14, 27. And we're going to put it up on the screen. I want you to say it together. I want you to say it like you've already had your first cup of coffee and a donut. Let's say it together. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now, I'm gonna apply this specifically. Jesus says, I wanna leave you in peace about your finances. Now, I'm not gonna give you financial peace the way the world gives it to you. I don't want your hearts to be troubled about money and I don't want you to be afraid about money. Boy, that's different, isn't it? 
What kind of peace was Jesus talking about? Well, as we've said, Jesus was thinking about shalom peace, and shalom peace is a deep sense of well-being that is not dependent on external circumstances. You can feel peaceful about your finances no matter what's happening in the outside world. Now, I think there's a reason that Forbes magazine didn't name that is why we have so much stress about money. And it's reason number six, and that is we're not following God's wisdom about money. Doesn't it make sense that the God who made you and the God who made the world knows more about you and knows more about your money than you do? Now see, here's where I can start to feel your pushback. Because if you acknowledge this, then you have to acknowledge I actually need help when it comes to money and financial decisions. So we're walking through Proverbs 3, and this is Solomon talking to his sons. His sons are about to go out and become government officials. He is training them, and you'll remember, he has taught them to fill their lives with love and faithfulness. Last week we talked about how he wants them to learn to trust the Lord with all their decisions, and now he gets real specific. Now why do you think Solomon is doing that? Because his sons are going to go to the outermost parts of his empire, and when they show up as sons of the king, do you think they will face financial challenges? Oh, yeah. They will face some financial challenges because people are going to say, hey, you're Solomon's son. I'll give you credit. Hey, you're Solomon's son. Hey, let me buy you a drink. You're Solomon's son. Let me cut you in on this deal, but don't tell anybody. You think his sons are going to face Financial temptation. Yeah, they are. And so Solomon is going to give them all through Proverbs some basic fundamental teaching about money that we actually know. And by the way, it did not exist before Solomon taught it. We know it. And he wants to start his sons off on the right foot. So in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we get this amazing financial truth. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now, there's a lot of truth packed in these two verses, so let's unpack it. First, Solomon says, honor the Lord. To honor means you give weight to something. You prioritize it. If my mother stood on the back steps of the porch and said, William Clay Smith, whatever came next, I knew I had to give weight to. I had to prioritize. Do you honor God? Do you prioritize him? Do you give him weight? (laughs) And then Solomon, just to really get into his son's business, says, With all your wealth. Now, wealth here means all your money, all your possessions. Now, remember, Solomon's sons had grown up in the palace. They would have been upper, upper class. They were the aristocracy, the royal family, if you will. And so Solomon's sons would have been wealthy, and he is telling them, hey, before I send you out in this world, you need to remember this. 
Give weight to God in all your financial affairs. In other words, trust God with all your financial decisions. Trust all your financial decisions to God. So, so what does that look like? I mean, how do you do that? Well, you, you start to dig into the book of Proverbs, you'll find out there's a lot of wisdom there. And you follow the teachings of God. Uh, not too long ago, uh, somebody approached me and asked me to co-sign a loan. And I knew the person's situation. I knew that if I co-signed the loan, that this person would be able to better their life. It would Im- improve their life. And there's part of me that, is a, you know, that as a follower of Jesus, I want to be generous to people in need. And I was thinking about this. Uh, and if I had had the money, I, I might could have given it to them, but I didn't have that much money. And, and then I thought, well, you know, I'm a pastor. Maybe I should do this because I'm a pastor. And then I remembered this verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 22, 26, do not be one who makes, uh, not be one who shakes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. What's that mean? Don't co-sign a loan. So I went back to that person. I said, look, I understand your situation. I wish I could help, but there's a teaching in the Bible that says, don't do this. Now, do you think that person was happy that I chose to follow the teaching of the Bible? No. Do you think they were mad at me? Oh, yes. They they made several comments about I wasn't a very good Christian and I wasn't a very good pastor and also a few comments about my ancestry that we won't go into. The truth is there was wisdom in the scripture and you need to know the wisdom. Learn from God how to handle your money. All right. The reason we don't want to do this is because we don't like to give up control. We don't like to give up control. Can we just acknowledge that? We don't like to give up control about any part of our life, but especially about money. So I had a cousin, and she would admit, I'm no good with money. I'm no good with money. And she came to one of the family gatherings. She was driving a new car. We all went out and said, wow, it's really a nice car. And it was really nice. And um, somebody asked her, well, what was wrong with the old one? And she said, nothing. She said, I work hard, and I decided I deserved a new car. Does that phrase, I deserved a new car, make you kind of go, See, you can see it in other people, can't you? It's hard to see it for ourselves. Uh, My cousin had a sense of entitlement. I work hard, I deserve this. Always pay attention when you say to yourself, I deserve this. And we do this in a lot of areas of our life, but especially in finances, because this is what gets us into hot water. That's not submitting to God's wisdom about money. Uh, You need to dig into the teaching of God's word, find out what it really says. You might be helped by getting into Financial Peace Life Group. We have one of those. If you need some more specific help in this area, our group's pastor, Kevin Binack, can direct you to some resources we have as a church that will help. And this is his email, kbinack at adbc.org. Um, and if you, I can't know how to write it that fast, go on the website, look for Kevin Binack's picture, click on it, you can send him an email. So what if you want something and God says no? Uh, That's the reason why a lot of us don't ask him, isn't it? We don't want to hear his no. But here's what I want you to remember. God's no is better than your yes. God's no is better than your yes. 
Remember how much God loves you? That God sent his one and only son to die on a cross for your sins? And then he, he rose or raised Jesus from the dead so that you could have a different life, you could live in his power and in his peace? So if God loves you that much, don't you think he wants you to have financial peace? That maybe God knows that if you say yes to that desire you have, that yes will lead to stress. And then you wonder, why do I have so much financial stress in my life? Because you're not listening to God's no. Now, let me deal with a couple of specifics. These are not going to apply to everybody, but they might apply to some, so I want to be sure we touch on this. Uh, Just like people eat compulsively or people drink compulsively, uh, you can compulsively spend your money. You may know somebody like that. You may be somebody like that. And if that is you, you need to admit, I have an addiction. Now, that's hard, and I know it's hard. But you've got to start dealing in the truth first. You have to admit that you're powerless over spending, and you have to ask God to remove that desire from you. You may need to see a counselor. You may need to get in a 12-step program. There are 12-step programs for compulsive spenders. And and you say, well, I'm just not sure I'm comfortable with doing that. Let let me tell you why you need to do that. (laughs) Because until you admit that there is a problem, the problem is going to control you. The addiction controls you. I have a friend who's in a 12-step program, and, and he does like four or five meetings a week. Uh, some of them are online, some of them are in person. He reads all the 12-step material. And I asked him, I said, why do you do this so much? And he said, because my problem is so much. I need to do so much because my problem is so much. My addiction is so much. Okay, so if that's you, if you have a compulsive spending issue, deal with it. Now, the second uh, remark I need to make, and it may not apply to everybody, is if you feel like you are a victim financially. And there are really two groups within this victim category. First of all, there are people who legitimately are victims. There's a lot of evil in the world. Some of you have been fired unjustly. Some of you have been let go from a corporate job because of downsizing or right-sizing in the corporation. Some of you lost your career to technology. I get that. And it's very hard to adjust to that reality. You are legitimately a victim. Some of you think of yourselves as a victim. And this is what happens when your neighbor pulls up to his house and he is pulling a brand new boat. And you are saying, God, why can't I have a brand new boat? How is he, I know what he does for a living. How does he do this? Do y'all ever think these things or is it just me? And so we do all these mental games and we start to feel like victims. Now, here's the reality. That goes back to a sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to these things. So whether you are a victim legitimately or you have a sense of entitlement and you see yourself as a victim, you have to take responsibility for you. You have to take responsibility for you. For some of you, that means you need to leave this service after I'm done preaching, preferably, and go into the bathroom and look in the mirror and say, my main financial problem is me. And again, I admit this is hard. 
it's hard. It's hard to admit that we are the worst enemy of ourselves financially. Because only then can you start getting the help you need. Again, I was talking to somebody who was uh, in, in a financial crisis, and uh, some of it was not his fault, and, but some of it really was. A lot of bad financial decisions. And so we had uh, helped him and uh, his family, and then we turned to them and said, okay, uh, here's some other places to get some help. Go here, be here at this time, you'll get the help you need. And then he started making the excuses. Well, I can't go there. Well, why? It's too far to walk. Okay, how far is it? We can get you a ride. Well, it, it, I, I just don't know if it's gonna work. I have to make sure that I take my medicine in the morning. And he came up with about four more excuses. And, and I get what he was really saying. He didn't wanna have to go in and admit that he had a crisis. But you've gotta take responsibility for yourself and for your financial situation. Now we've only gone through the first line of the first verse. And some of you are worried this is going to be a two hour sermon. I would say to you, just get comfortable. No, 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 we're gonna move a little quicker. Look at the second line of verse nine. With the first fruits of all your clock, your, not your clock, your crop. So honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. So Solomon's sons would have been allotted a piece of land. They would have hired a farmer. The farmer would have planted. They would have made a harvest. They would have given Solomon's sons their portion. And what do Solomon's sons do when they get their first paycheck, that first big harvest? Now, I, I, I'm not trying to pick on these folks, but have you ever noticed what happens to young airmen and young soldiers about six months after they finish basic and tech school and they come here, what's the first thing they buy with that paycheck? I, I've heard diamond ring and car. Yeah, I, I, it's usually car, motorcycle. Uh, I pull up to the stoplight in my nine-year-old truck and I see them driving an $80,000 pickup truck. And I just rolled, I just look at them and go, how, how, how is this possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. They have walked into a dealership, they have shown them their pay stub from the military, and that dealership will finance a new vehicle for them for 96 months. For those of you who don't do math real fast, that's eight years. Eight years. Do you think that's a good financial decision on their part? That some of you are saying, yeah, it's a good financial decision on their part? No, 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 and I can go into all the reasons why that's not a real smart move, but, but here's what happens. They've taken their first paycheck and they've said, that's mine. So what Solomon's saying to his sons is no, honor the first part of what you get, use it to honor God. Now, um, let me kind of unpack this a little bit more. There is an idea of first fruits in the Bible. It's repeated many times. It's a prominent theme in the Old Testament. Sometimes people will look at the New Testament and say, well, this idea is not given as much in the New Testament. And it's not, not as prominently. But you need to know that there was a book written after the New Testament was written, but shortly after, about 100 AD, 100 AD to 120 AD, it was written by a man named Irenaeus, the Bishop of Antioch. 
uh, and it's called the Didache. It is a, a compilation of other teachings of the disciples. And there's a section in there on how Christians should manage their money, and it includes this line. As for money and clothes and any other possessions, take the first fruit that seems right to you and give in accordance with the commandment. What we know is this, first century Christians practiced giving 10% of their income to their local church, to their local gathering. Now, we don't live in an agrarian economy, we live in a cash economy, so it goes like this for us, before you spend, give 10% to God. Before you spend, give 10% to God. That's prioritizing God, that's giving God the first fruits. Now, I, why does God want 10%? Why does he say 10%? Well, I think God does this because he knows you can't organize your finances or you, you can't give 10% without organizing your finances. You can't give 10% without organizing your finances. Let me tell you how most Americans think. Most Americans think the answer to the financial problems is more. 73% of Americans do not have a household budget. So let's just kind of get this picture in your mind. Let's say you go to the faucet in your house and turn on the water and no water comes out. What do you do? Well, do it make, does it make any sense to go to your neighbor and say, I'm out of water, can I run a hose from your spigot to my house? And you set up a hose, run the spigot, put it in a window and turn on the water. Is that gonna solve your plumbing problem? No, that's gonna do more damage. And yet we think that way about our money, don't we? Unless you have a plan to direct it, and unless you unclog some pipes and fix some valves, you're gonna have a bigger mess just by getting more. That's the reason why, by the way, when you get a raise from work, rarely does it reduce your stress. More often, it increases your stress. So what is the equivalent, or, or, before I go there, let me, let me just say, um, how, do you, how do you do this? How do you get budget? There's all kind of budgeting tools on the internet. Uh, Dave Ramsey has a helpful tool. Uh, you can go to uh, uh, my blog, wclaysmith.com. There is posted a link to Dave Ramsey's household budget. And it covers everything from entertainment, groceries, insurance. It even has a line for haircuts. For some of you, that's a bigger number than for some of us. Okay, so what is the equivalent of giving the first fruits of your crops? Well, of course, we live in a cash economy. It means all your income. And people say, should I tithe on my gross or on my net? I've got these investments, they return this. How do I do this? So a very rich man came to his pastor and said, pastor, I need you to sit down, help me figure out my tithe. And the pastor said, no, I'm not gonna do it. And the rich man said, I don't understand. Why won't you help me? He said, because every time you sit down and figure, God loses money. So I want you to think about what does it mean? Take your income, take 10% and give. Who should receive the tithe? My uncle Bedford, uh, I, I heard him say it many times. I said, I don't believe in giving all my tithe to the same place. I give a little bit to New Hope, and I give a little bit to First Assembly of God, and I give a little bit to First Methodist. Well, you know what Uncle Bedford was really doing? <laughs> he was taking a little bit and making it littler. 
for those of you who think, okay, I'm just going to want to help people. I don't want to give my money to a big institution. (laughs) I totally understand. Except that the Bible says in Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. God says, I want you to bring all of your tithe into one place so it can be used to support what I am doing there. Some of you may remember the phrase, storehouse tither. That means you give a tithe here. If you want to do something else, give offerings other places, that's over and beyond your tithe. And I know this is uncomfortable because it's like, okay, but I want control. Part of this whole deal is you learning to let go of control. Max Lucado um, told a story. He's a Christian author. He told a story about his dad and about how his, when his dad died, his dad had come to faith in Christ later in life, but when his dad died, they found his checkbook, and there at the front, let me explain, checks to everybody under 40, they are these little pieces of paper where you write down, you could get money to other people. Um, it, it was Venmo before Venmo, okay? Um, and so they found 52 checks that he had written the 1st of January, Those were his tithe checks to his church. So before he ever earned that income, he wrote a check. He had already made the decision he was going to tithe on his income, which at that point in his life was his social security and his retirement. Now some of you at this point are just scratching your heads because you're saying, okay, Clay, I get it. We should do all this, but Clay, the more you talk, the more stress I feel. And I get that, I get that. Sometimes, before you can have peace, you have to have stress. The stress is telling you that something needs to change. And you're really not going to have financial peace until you surrender your financial plans to God. Now, verse 10. It explains what happens when you begin to put God in charge of your financial decisions. Verse 10 says, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. There's a lot of verses like this in the Bible that say, if you give, you are going to be blessed. Jesus himself in Acts 20, 35 said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of warped teaching about this. You probably have heard some TV preacher say something about, send me $500 and God will give you a new Mercedes Benz. I don't think it works that way. It's known as the prosperity gospel or prosperity theology. And and let's face it, if you are giving so you can get, it's just another way of justifying your greed. All you're doing is putting lipstick on a pig of greed. Why does it work this way? Why does God bless you if you give? Well, let's say I wanna go to Florida and I drive out to I-95 And if I want to go to Florida, what direction do I go? Okay, for everybody who said north, you need to go back and check a map. You go south, right? I go south to Florida. So imagine if I get there and I say, I don't want to go south. It looks like traffic is bad south. I think going south is going to be stressful. I want to go north. Can I get to Florida going north? No, it doesn't work that way because trucks don't float over the polar cap. The reason that you get blessed is because you're going in God's direction. 
You're actually doing what God wants you to do. And then God begins to open up your vision to opportunities. God begins to work through your saving, your budgeting. God is at work because you're doing your finances his way. See, ultimately, all of this ties back to what we talked about last week. Remember what we talked about last week? Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. What would happen if you trusted God with all your financial decisions? Before you made a purchase, (laughs) for some of us, before we walk into Walmart, how much we save, how much we give, What would happen if you trusted God with all your financial decisions? Some of you are saying, Clay, I'm in too deep. There's no way out for me. I can't start trusting God now. I've already made too big a mess. (laughs) We're talking about the God who can straighten out the mess of the world. I think he can help you with your money. You might say, Clay, have you you ever really seen this work? Yeah, I have. I lived with it. Um, This is a picture of my mom and my stepfather It's a little fuzzy. Um, Guys, my mom and my dad, okay. It'll come up soon. There it is, okay, yeah, okay. Uh, Guess which one is which? Uh, Okay, my stepfather Lawrence is the guy with the bald head, um, and that's my mom, and um, uh, Lawrence is not only my stepfather, he's also my first cousin. And that's a southern thing, don't, don't ask me to explain. Uh, Lawrence did not profess his faith in Christ until he was uh, middle-aged. He and I, in fact, were baptized on the same night. And I, I will tell you that Lawrence was not a perfect man and he was not a perfect Christian. Uh, he was not a man of prayer. I heard him say the same blessing every meal we ever, ever did. I never saw him read his Bible. Um, but he got this part right. He really did trust God with his finances. He only borrowed money twice in his life. Can you imagine that? Only twice. He never had a credit card balance that didn't get paid. Um, And he honored God with giving. My parents were farmers, they got paid six times a year. And yet every morning uh, before we went to church, I can see him still going into the office and sitting down with a checkbook and writing a check for his tithe, even though he didn't know how much money he was gonna earn that year. And that wasn't all, I mean he would, and we're in our rural community, medical care was a long way away. And so it was not uncommon for the pastor to put 100,000 miles on a car in a year. And so about every three years, Pop would get together with some of the men in the church, and Pop always led this effort, and say it's time for us to buy the preacher a new car. And they would buy the pastor a new car. He would get together with my Aunt Faye and my Mama Cat. Mama Cat is a member of my family who's not really related to us by blood, but she's a family member. Do you know those kind of people? And the three of them would get together and make sure the preacher had a new suit every year. That's back when preachers wore suits. I I was with him when he said, we've got to go to the Red Apple. The Red Apple was the dress shop in our town. And I'm thinking, and we go in there and Pop says to the lady, there are two girls, I'm going to tell them to come up here and I want you to let them pick out three or four dresses each. Don't tell them it's from me, but they don't have nice clothes and I want them to have something nice to wear. 
I hated watermelon season because after we quit harvesting watermelons, he would go out and we would pick watermelons and we'd give them to all the widows in the community. And I was his helper, which meant he would talk to the widows and I'd unload watermelons. I saw it. I saw it. And I, I look back now. And when my mother got Alzheimer's and Lawrence got sick and the orange grove started dying, God took care of them. And I still don't know how the math worked. I really don't. But God took care of him. And it was because he honored the Lord with his wealth, with his first fruits. What would happen for you if you just made some step of saying, God, I'm going to honor you first with my money? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a challenging thing for us because frankly, God, means we do have to let go of control. We have to ask for your help, your wisdom. But would you please, today, help us to trust you enough that you're going to take care of us. And I don't know what people are struggling with financially, but I pray, Father, that they would, they would hear your voice and they, they would not just think or feel something, that they would actually do something today. And Father, I know it's strange to talk about money, but maybe, maybe somebody today was actually realizing that they need Jesus as Savior. And I pray, God, that they would take that next step today. Father, you are a good God. So we're going to trust you no matter what's going on in our life whether the answer in our finances is yes or no, we're going to trust you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.